invite you at this time to turn in your pew Bibles to page 1899. 1899, where we find our scripture reading for tonight. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote the book, The Weight of Glory, he discussed something that was very important. In that book, he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis is saying the desires that we have for the things of this world are not actually strong. They're weak desires. They're short-sighted desires. They're desires like a kid who wants to play in the mud but doesn't realize that there is a beautiful beach vacation that he can enjoy. Right? And so he says this then. Do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have the need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness, which, was, which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. In that book, he was trying to communicate the fact that we, as Christians, have become worldly, involved in the things of the world, that we have become enchanted by the world. And he desired to break the evil enchantment of worldliness. Well, in a very real sense, John was writing to his audience to do the very same thing. He was trying to break the enchantment of worldliness that had come upon them. Very much so in the form of these Gnostic teachers who were teaching them a distinction between 
the spirit and the physical. It doesn't matter what you do in the physical. It only matters what you do in the spirit, right? So if I were to take these two things that John talks about in our scripture passage tonight and merge them together, this is how I would describe it. Spiritual maturity is evidenced in our disposition toward the world. Spiritual maturity is evidence in our disposition toward the world. We have two points tonight. The first is growing in spiritual maturity. That is a strange M. All right. That's verses 12 through 14. And then our second point is love not the world. And that is verses 15 through 17. So let's look at that first point together. Once again, I am greatly indebted to the breakdown of these outlines to um, his, Stephen Lawson's uh, Bible study in First uh, John. Growing in spiritual maturity, uh, the first thing that we need to do here is understand that as John is coming to this point in his letter, he sort of takes a pause, a time out from his original, his normal content. It's a parenthesis to ask the question, where are you with the Lord? To ask the question, what stage of growth are you at? What level of maturity do you have? So, um, the first thing that he says here is the reassurance. Verse 12, eh? Or just verse 12. When he says, I write to you, dear children... Um, if this is a different word, Greek word for children, than it is in verse 13 when he says, I write to you, dear children. Um, this is a, uh, a term of endearment. This is the same term that he's used at the beginning of chapter 2, my dear children. I write to you, dearly beloved, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been... So this is a general statement. I write to you, I want to reaffirm why I write to you. I write to you, uh, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. So he's given out these tests of true faith, um, but the reality is, as you look at these tests of true faith, none of us can keep these things perfectly. None of us is without imperfection, without fault, without um, uh, need for improvement. And so in, in case anybody has mistaken these tests of true faith as um, a pass-fail kind of test, right, um, a pass-fail kind of test... In the sense that, um, you know, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Oh, somebody says that means I have to obey all his commands all the time. I don't do that. I, I fail that test. No. The question is, do you have a changed heart that desires to obey his commands, right? So, the, so John here wants to take this moment and again bring us a reassurance that we have been forgiven of all our sins. Little children here refers to everyone who's a born-again believer. 
a term of endearment. Our sins have been separated uh, from us. They've been taken away from us. And watch what he says here. He says, because your sins have been forgiven um, so that you don't have to feel bad anymore. So that you don't know for his name's sake, right? On account of his name, for his name's sake. And this, it, it seems to also almost echo what uh, David says in Psalm 51 about sin. Um, our sins have been removed from us, taken away from us, placed on Christ, so that Christ may be glorified and his name may be lifted up above all other names. So this is just a, a, a reassurance, right? Uh, right here, though, the second point is the recognition. Verse 13. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. John, in this point, lays out three basic spiritual categories within the family of God. All believers are equally forgiven, uh, but not are all equally spiritually mature. That's a point that he's making here. Everybody is equally forgiven. The foot of the cross is level, right? At the foot of the cross is level, but not everybody's at the same level of spiritual maturity. And so he, he breaks down these three stages of spiritual maturity. The first is the intimacy stage, or the intimacy stage. The second is the infantry, the infantry, the infantry stage. And the third is the infancy stage. And we'll break those down. The intimacy stage. I'm writing to you, fathers. I'm writing to you, fathers. I'm writing to you, spiritual parents in the Lord. I'm writing to you who are most mature in the Lord, who have grown in the grace and knowledge of Christ over many years, who spent a long time in the Word, who have the most experience in the Christian life, who weathered the most storms. And the sign of this stage the sign of the stage that you have reached the intimacy stage of, of spiritual maturity. Because you know him who is from the beginning. You know him who is from the beginning. John is in this point referencing the beginning of John's gospel. Referencing the beginning of his letter. That which was from the beginning. He's talking about God who is eternal. God who is outside of time. You know God on a deep level. You come to have an experiential knowledge of God the Father. You've been transformed by the vastness, the eternality, and sovereign character and nature of God. You've studied the attributes of God, the omnis of God. You're deeply connected with who God is. You've got a, you've got a picture, you've got a big God because you've gone through so much of life with God the Father that God has become so much larger in your view to, to you. This is the intimacy stage. I write to you fathers because you've known him who's from the beginning. What about the infantry? That's why I was saying it weird because there's not an are there. Infantry stage. What about the infantry stage? I'm writing to you young men. What is this? Young men could be 20s. It could be 20s to 40s. Young men could be somebody who's... Um, just become a Christian, but has been a Christian for 
uh, 10 years, but is very excited, passionate about being a Christian. So it might not even be something that associates you with age, right? But this is the, the mark of, a, of, a, of the infantry stage because you've overcome the evil one. What does that mean? Um, you want to be in the game. You want to be in the battle. You want to invade enemy territory with the gospel and win souls for Christ. You want to fight battles for God. You want to tear down strongholds. You want to contend for the faith. You want to destroy secular philosophies and ideologies. You're active, not passive. You're tired of just being a passive participant. You have an assignment. You don't want to just be a Sunday-only Christian. You want to be living. You want to be active for God. You've, you've come to this point, this stage in your, your Christian life, where you want to go out there, and you want to confront, and you want to talk, and you want to speak, and you're, you're, you're excited. You are you're in the battle. And then there's the infancy stage. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. Here the word is different than in verse 12. It means babies. It means little ones. It means the same word in the Gospels when the, uh, the parents are bringing the little children to uh, Jesus. Um, small enough to pick up and put on your shoulder. Small enough to pick up and place on your knee. Uh, they have faith, but these are baby Christians. It hasn't been tested yet. It hasn't been challenged. You're a weak Christian. You're a spiritual toddler. The mark of this is because you know the Father. You see, when you're a baby, you have to be cared for. You have to be fed. You have to uh, be served. And a father is one who does all that. So you know God at an elementary level as the one who takes care of you. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just a, a statement about where you're at. Um, children are one of two things. One, they just began their Christian walk, just born again. Or two, you can be a little baby Christian even though you've been a believer for some time. You've just never moved out of your parents' house. You haven't grown up. You've never been involved in serving in the Lord. You've never progressed to a point beyond this, right? And so then this is what John does. He takes these three stages... And he just reinforces what he just said. The reassurance, the recognition, the reinforcement. Verse 14. This is sort of a, a way to, to bring it home. I write to you fathers because you've known him who is from the beginning. Repetition right there. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Those are a little bit more... Um, information given about the infantry stage. Uh, the way one is strong and overcomes the evil one is through the word of God abiding in you. The Bible is residing in you, not moving out. This is spiritual protein. That you're eating meat. You're gaining strength. You're building muscle. Right? Because you're strong, the word of God abides in you, lives in you, has taken up residence in you. And you've overcome the evil one. So this reinforcement reinforces the intimacy stage and the infantry stage. Almost as if to say that John is saying here, why would I, why would I include these three stages? The fathers, 
of the young men and the dear children. But then the second reinforcement, I would leave out the dear children because I think what he's saying is, is that at some point you're supposed to move out of that phase, right? At some point you're supposed to bridge the gap. You're supposed to move on to these more mature stages. You're supposed to become more of an active Christian and move in the infantry stage. And then you're supposed to be, move beyond the infantry stage and, and come into the intimacy stage, right? Because the, the, all these stages are needed. Um, you know, I remember when I first came across the doctrines of grace and, um, and the, the dangerous thing these days is when you become like a, you know, you have your second conversion experience and, and, and you let John Calvin into your heart and <laughs> just and you become a Calvinist, you have access to this thing called Facebook and social media. And you just start blasting everybody with these truths because you want everybody to know that you finally found out what the Bible really teaches about these things. And you start whacking people. And they call that the cage stage, right? That's kind of like the infantry stage, right? You, you appreciate the passion that that person has. But the people who have been Christians for a long time, they need to come alongside somebody like that. And they need to say, calm down, fellow. Put the revolver away, right? Let's not, sh let's not start shooting right away. Our speech is supposed to be seasoned with salt, kindness, gentleness, right? I, I remember I was excited about and, and on fire for the Lord. We, I, I'm not trying to steal the passion. I'm not trying to put the fire out. I'm just saying the way you're coming across, right, it's a bit... In your face. So there's some, there's some questions that we can ask about what John is, is saying here when he discusses these various stages of, of Christian maturity, right? Uh, and it's this. Where do you fall on this growth chart? Where are, where are you right here? Are you level one, level two, level three? Where are you in your spiritual maturity? How long have you been at that level for um, and what areas do you need to grow in? Is the word of God abiding in you, remaining in you, living and active in your life? Is it something that shapes your daily outlook? Do you have a deep knowledge of God and of his word, not just a surface level? Um, what spiritual disciplines do you participate in? How often and how regularly do you pray? What do you need to do to grow? Do you have a desire to grow? If you are a mature believer, how are you helping others grow? These are all important questions. These are all reflection questions. These are all things that we, we don't think about. And because we don't think about them, they don't shape the way that we approach life. They don't shape the way that we want to take next steps. We don't ask the question, where do I want to be in a month from now? And two months from now, and in a year from now, and two years from now, and five years from now, where do I want to be? What kind of person do I want to be? Because if you think about those things, th then you understand, you know that there are things you're going to have to put in place today, tomorrow, if you want to get to that place. Everybody knows this if you're, if you're on, a, on, a, on, a, on a workout plan. And you're trying to change your diet and you're trying to build strength and you're trying to build endurance. You have to make daily decisions that affect where that ends up, your end goal, right? You want to you you run a marathon in July. First of all, I hope it's a half marathon because that's not very far away. 
But if you want to get to that point and, and you be ready to run that marathon, then you've got to start making changes, right? But we don't approach our Christian life the same way. We don't approach the way that we, the, the self-reflection that it requires to say, I, I'm not where I want to be, but I, if I want to get there, if I want to grow, then I need to start asking for God to give me the grace to grow, the desire to grow, and start implementing things that will help me get there. And I think one of the first things that you can do that will greatly improve your ability to grow spiritually is that if there is another Christian brother or sister that you look up to, that you admire, come up to them and say, hey, I really admire you. I really look up to you as a Christian brother and sister. And I've been wanting to grow spiritually lately. Can you help me with that? I think that's one of the best ways to start making those changes. But one of the ways we can uh, do a diagnostic, you could say, into determining where we are on that growth chart spiritually. Oh, no. Is, I have no idea what happened to this board. Maybe it's the marker. Is to examine the way we look at the world. I love not this marker. Because it's of the world. You see, as believers, we're called to align our hearts with God. We're called to love what God loves. And believe it or not, as unpopular as that might be today, we're called to hate what God hates also. Um, And John is calling us to this as he bridges into this next section about not loving the world. The first point made here. So weird. Is the command. Verse 15a. The command. Do not love the world or anything in the world. This is a command. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. This comes in the imperative. In the Greek. Which means this comes as a direct command from God, from his word. Do not love the world or anything in the world. It's strictly forbidden under any circumstances. But before we get to that point, we should ask ourselves the question, what does John mean by this? Do not love the world. Because John 3.16, one of the most popular verses in the Bible, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So is John telling us to not love something that God loves? Because I thought we were supposed to love the things God loves and hate the things God hates. Well, that word cosmos in the Greek has a variety of uses. And uh, the way that you determine its use is by the context. So in some contexts, the, the word cosmos or world means the universe. Sometimes it has reference to the planet Earth. Sometimes it has reference to mankind in general. Sometimes it has reference to fallen humanity. Sometimes it has reference to the non-elect. But here, in this context, 
John is using it to refer to the evil world system over which Satan presides, the principalities and powers, the godless secular ideologies and influences that are at work in our culture, that there is a networking and an infrastructure in the world and its spheres which are anti-Christ and hostile toward God. It's the kinds of things that are happening in our world when we think that is so corrupt, that is so evil. When behind closed doors, Disney executives are talking about how they want to sneak LGBTQ stuff into little kids' shows. That's the kind of stuff that John is talking about when he says the world. Right? That's what he's talking about. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Worldly possessions, worldly pursuits, worldly pleasures, idols. The challenge is to live in the world but not love it. That is the challenge, isn't it? Because John's not saying, get it yourself out of the world. Hide yourself away in a monastery. Go away and, ex- and, ex- and close yourselves off from the rest of the world. Be like the Amish or be like the monks or be like the, the church fathers, the desert fathers who went and locked themselves away in caves. That's not what John is saying. The challenge is to be a boat in the water, just no water in the boat. This is not saying you can't have things, just that things can't have you. In the world, not of the world. The reverse, though, is also implied. Do not love the world, love the one who created the world. Right. When John says, do not love the world or anything in the world, John is saying, in, in, you're, as a Christian, a sign of maturity is that you are fixated on the creator rather than created things or creatures. And if you read Romans 1, that's what Paul is saying happens in the heart of twisted and broken humanity is that we shift those things. We start worshiping and glorifying and idolizing created things and creatures rather than the creator who created them. Do not love the creation, but the creator. James 4.4 references uh, this same, very same thing. He says, the letter, James 4, chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So the command John gives us here is do not love the world or anything in the world. Here's the conflict. Fifteen B. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone lives for the evil world system, if that is what drives you, if that is your passion, if that is your main pursuit, if that is your reason for living, these things can't live in the same heart at the same time. Categorically, the distinction is made between unbelievers, lovers of the world, and believers, lovers of God. But relatively, right, a believer can become ensnared in the things of this world. 
And as love for the world increases in the believer's heart, love for God decreases. There's a teeter-totter effect that happens here. Um, Jesus will say this. No one can serve two masters, right? You will either love one and, and hate the other, or you'll hate one and love the other. You cannot serve money and God. So, so John is not saying here, if anyone struggles with love of the world in their heart. No, he's saying, if anyone's main reason for living is to stack that cash higher. It's to buy the bigger toy. It's to enjoy all the worldly pleasures and possessions and pursuits that a man can experience in this life. Then love of the Father is not in them. And then he moves on to the challenge. Verse 16 says, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. I don't think the NIV translation helps us here. Um... The, the translation that I am most often used to says of these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Um, I think what the NIV is doing here as a dynamic equivalency translation is seeking to uh, show you what these three things entail. The lust of the flesh is the cravings of sinful man. That's, what, that's, that's an un, okay understanding of what the lust of the flesh means, right? Uh, the lust of the eyes is, is kept the same, but the cravings and the lust in that translation are the same word. They're the same word in the Greek. Um, and the boasting of what he has and does. The pride of life, that's, that's what it is. It, it's, 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 ta- it's a man who's filled with, with what he does and what he has. But I want to try to show you how these things are connected. The lust of the flesh, the strong craving of the old man that Christians still struggle with. Sinful appetites and desires. And so if you wanted a reference to that, you could go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, where Paul gives us what he means by uh, uh, the lust of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Same Greek phrase there. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. The lust of the eyes. This is the key to what is triggering the the flesh. What you set before your eyes now has an entry into your heart, which then ignites and incites the flesh. There are many passages to this, but I want to bring up just a couple. The first being um, that very, very sad moment at the beginning of creation, Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. What do we read there? When the woman saw 
that the fruit of the tree was good for food and it was pleasing to the eye. She took some and she ate it, right? But also, we read in Jesus' ministry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Matthew chapter 6, verse 22-23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Guard your eyes, because what you look at is fuel either to the spirit or to the flesh. And then the pride of life, what we see that appeals to our flesh, ignites our pride. If I just had this, then I would appear better to others. I would look like a rich, wealthy person that's successful. I deserve this because I've earned it, right? Self-elevation and self-importance, that's what happens when you give in to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. You have to put yourself first before all other things. You have to pour into yourself what you want, what you desire, what you'd like to get, right? This threefold system comes not from the Father, but from the world. You'll see a number of um, unholy trinities in John's letter here. So you have to be on guard. You have to understand that this world system that we're in, but we're not supposed to, that we live amongst, but we're not supposed to be delving into. This world system is evangelistic. It seeks to convert. It wants you to have. It wants you to sign up. I mean, all you got to do is turn on the TV and listen to ads for a few seconds. And you'll begin to see the world system that John is talking about. You know, like one of my favorite things that I think about often is around Christmas season when car commercials start having these beautiful commercials where a guy like covers his wife's eyes and says, come out here. And then she comes outside and parked in their meticulously beautiful driveway is a car with a big, huge ribbon on it. And she goes, oh! And every time I see that, I think to myself, that man just made a very big financial decision without consulting his wife. I mean, just how does that happen? That just is so unrealistic, you know? But, but the whole point of advertisement is it wants you to feel that you deserve this. Burger King, have it your way. McDonald's, I'm loving it. You deserve it. Indulge, enjoy, purchase, buy. You need this to feel satisfied. You need this to feel beautiful. You need this to feel loved. You need this to feel important. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Be on guard, Christian, against this. It's not from the Father, 
It's from the world. They're trying to grab your attention. How are you combating? And then finally, the contrast. Speaking of contrast, if you guys are wearing glasses, you probably can't read this at all. It's so light. I'll have to figure out what's going on with this. Verse 17, John says, The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. The world is the Titanic. It's going down, fading. It's devolving, not evolving. It's perishing and dying. It's imploding from within. So why put all your eggs in that basket? It's a poor investment. It's on a slippery slope. If you want to invest in the world, what you're saying is, I prefer instant gratification over eternal pleasure. That's what you're saying. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. The one who does the will of God is a believer who actively pursues the things of God, the right priorities, guards his eyes, his soul, follows after God's word, seeks to live before his face. This is the one who lives forever. This is the right investment. This is the life of the age to come. It belongs to this person. Eternal life, present tense. Which one are you going to invest in? Are you going to love the world or are you going to love the Father? You get to love the Father forever, the world is going to pass away. You get to enjoy the Father and the Son and the Spirit forever. The world, the unholy trinity of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it will all fade away. It will all be gone. And everybody who bought all the toys and had all the nice things in this life, They're going to go, I wish I would have done that. And everybody who said, I invested in the kingdom to come, I invested in the creator, not the creation, you will be vindicated. And one of the ways we can gauge our spiritual maturity is evidence in our disposition toward the world. Do we believe that we are strangers passing through this world, that we can bring nothing with us, that we're not pharaohs who can stuff our graves and our burials and our tombs full of all the glory and the gold? And hey, do you know that they even killed the families sometimes so that the families could pass on into the afterlife with the pharaohs? And you know what happened to those graves and those tombs? Grave robbers broke into them and stole all of the precious jewels and gold. And most of it has withered away to dust. If you want a way to gauge your spiritual maturity, gauge the way that you look at the world system, the corrupt world system around us. And if you have the discernment and the ability to look beyond those lies, to not indulge the lust of the flesh, 
to guard your eyes and make a covenant with your eyes to not look upon that which is going to ignite the lust of the flesh and to understand that the pride of life that you should have is not about the life that you have here, but the eternal life that you have in Jesus Christ. You will boast only in what God has done. You'll boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Then you're growing in maturity and spiritual maturity. We should have strong desires. We need to stop being half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We need to stop being like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. We need to be overcoming the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us and we need to be grasping for the weight of glory that has been offered to us in Jesus Christ. Amen. We pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this word. We pray, Lord, that we would take into consideration what you have taught us tonight that we would desire to grow in spiritual maturity wherever we may be, whatever stage we may be at on that journey. Trust that you provide what we need to grow in godliness and holiness and the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that we pray, Lord, that you would keep us from love of this world, that you would protect us from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. You would help us to be on guard And you would help us, Lord, to grow in our love towards you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.